0: Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. Before we jump into my conversation with Ann Tumlinson from Ann Tumlinson Innovations and Daughterhood, I want to personally invite you to the Skilled Nursing News Summit in Chicago coming up in June. More than 150 skilled nursing owners, operators, and industry professionals will convene for a morning of networking and discussion on regulatory changes, the M and A landscape, new models pioneered by innovative skilled nursing operators, and our C-suite panel featuring the industry's leading executives. Visit skillednursingnews.com/events to buy your ticket and attend this exciting event. My guest today is Ann Tumlinson, a leading voice on policy and reimbursement issues in the long-term and post-acute healthcare space and beyond. Formerly of Avalier Health and the Federal Office of Management and Budget, she currently runs her own shop, Ann Tumlinson Innovations, and also created Daughterhood, a consumer-facing portal designed to help guide adults through the process of caring for their aging parents. In our chat today, I wanted to find out just how hard some of the new payment models have hit providers on the ground level, as well as find out some ways that savvier operators are learning to capitalize on the changes. Hey, Anne, uh, good morning. Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Glad to do it.
0: All right. So I want to start out with a pretty basic question that I'm sure a lot of our uh, listeners and readers are interested in is just how bad is it out there for providers with Medicare Advantage? If there's been one trend in my time covering the beat, it's just how bad it is. So just how bad is it?
1: (laughs) Uh, It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. I haven't talked to a single provider who has said to me, oh, you know what? We have got this great relationship with Medicare Advantage plans and we've negotiated a you know, a value-based contract and it's good. Everybody I talk to has expressed to me just incredible frustration, mostly with the rates and the contracting process, kind of preparing themselves to take almost drastic measures. You know, what are the legal oper- means through which we can actually all band together and start to negotiate more collectively because this is just getting it's getting ridiculous. That's those are what most of my calls are—initial calls that come in, or like, what do we do about this?
0: That's it. Now, I haven't really heard about that. Uh, this idea that almost like a unionizing or collective bargaining for skilled nursing operators—is that legal in certain states? You know, can they band together even if they're not under the same company or same umbrella?
1: Yeah, they can, and it's legal in all states in this in the following sense. So there's certain safe harbor strategies that nursing home providers can use to work together in more of a collective way. Now, in order to avoid antitrust issues, these kinds of sort of collective bargaining strategies don't have a ton of teeth in them, but they're better than nothing, I think. And they can actually, I think, overall just improve the relationship between the sector and the managed care plans in that state. And so, you know, just in a nutshell, they're kind of revolve around two key strategies. One is, that the law says you can be an MSO. You know, you can form a group that has come together to kind of collectively improve and monitor quality across your organization. So you say like we're all coming together and kind of a collective to improve quality and monitor each other's quality and adhere to certain quality standards. And so the you know the group has a purpose and it's selective. You know, only four star buildings and higher are in this group and we collect all this information and we give each other support to improve quality. Like if you do that, then you can assign somebody essentially the role going to then the managed care organization and say, Hey, we are we represent sort of one group and we're going to you know, I'm going to negotiate a contract with you all on behalf of everyone in our group. As long as that person's doing it in in what's called kind of a, a messenger model is what it's called. It's where that one person is essentially kind of negotiating on behalf of each one of the individuals in the group without sharing information with the other one, then you know it can work. Anyway, I know that sounds really complicated, and, but we're seeing, I guess the bottom line is we're seeing organizations in various states doing it. And it's exciting because I think it's the direction that we're going to have to go in.
0: That's almost like an ACL, but from the other direction. If yeah,
1: I'm not, exactly. If I'm not mistaken. Exactly, exactly. You're trying to gain some market leverage, but you're also trying to give the market something in return. So we, you know, you guys need to deal with us kind of in one fell swoop. It's going to be more efficient for you. We're going to streamline the contracting. We're going to streamline, you know, all of the different kinds of process points. And we're going to give you higher overall quality. And so it's it should be a win-win for everyone.
0: Exactly. Now, one of the interesting things, and keep in mind, when I cover these issues, I'm covering them for maybe about 40,000, 50,000 feet. So one of the things that I'm always interested in is this idea that they're really enforcing length of stay, this idea that, okay, yeah. if, if, I'm, if I'm working with a Medicare Advantage provider, they're really going to be militant about, okay, it's going to be That's 17 right. days at most. What are the actual That's levers right. that they have to pull for that kind of thing? Clearly, they're not going in and saying, well, Mrs. Johnson's been in this bed for 17 days and now she's got to go. So what, what, are, what are the kind of the logistical things? That's a question that I've always had when, when covering these issues and hearing from uh, providers talking about length of stay issues.
1: So just to take a step back for a quick second, Medicare Advantage plans, I always like to say, you know, they have this toolbox of techniques and strategies that they use to manage costs to as close as they possibly can get to what's called their medical loss ratio. So not to get too weedy here, but every single Medicare Advantage plan is required to spend at least 85 cents on every dollar on traditional Medicare benefits. And so, you know, they want to get as close to 85% as they possibly can. You know, so if you actually, if you look kind of overall the plans, you'll see basically they're coming at like 85.2%. A penny over cuts into their net income. But 85% is not, that's a lot of money actually. So it doesn't necessarily incentivize them to do really creative aggressive care management, sort of like working to put in place things that bend the cost curve dramatically. What it, But what it does do, they reach into this sort of bag of tools or this toolbox. And in there, in order to manage to 85 cents on the dollar, in that toolbox, one of their key tools is called utilization management. Utilization management is like a business process in in traditional insurance that's extremely kind of based in And it's a process through which there's a team on the insurance side that's essentially monitoring, you know, when somebody goes into a hospital, kind of monitoring every single step of that that process to ensure that what's being delivered is kind of as efficient as it can possibly be, (laughs) you know, and really like evaluating if they're paying the hospital on a per day basis, which some insurers do. They're evaluating every day of that day and whether or not they can, using their own criteria, Declare that person to be done with that and, and say, we're not going to pay anymore after a certain day. So that's what they do at the skilled nursing facility. You know, they essentially, every insurer is different, but they set up kind of like a break point where, you know, past which every day has to be, and that's usually under 10 days. And every day after that, that has to be evaluated. And they're just looking for things like, do I feel from a clinical perspective, this person could theoretically go home and do fine at home? And one of the kind of key points of that is that they don't necessarily, they don't care. I don't mean for them to make this on plans totally, but they don't really, they don't care if that family doesn't have services and support in place at home to care for somebody who may not yet really be ready to go home. Like that's not part of their evaluation criteria. They're really just looking at, has this rehab stay done kind of the bare minimum that it was supposed to do, which was literally just like, get that person out of the hospital, stabilize them and get them for like like acute medical event to a situation where they could be at home. And how that person is supported at home is just not their concern. So under Medicare traditional fee-for-service, the skilled nursing facility has a little bit more flexibility in working with the family to kind of like, well, if we deliver three more days, when your mom goes home, maybe she'll be fine on her own. That's not how the plan looks at it.
0: Got it. But the Medicare Advantage plan doesn't have any vested interest in the home health aspect of it as well. Or are they really, they're really just looking at it in terms of let's just get this person home, and then after that, it's it's out of our hands.
1: That's right. I mean, I mean, I think you know, if the family working with the skilled nursing facility or primary care doctor, or somebody is sort of like you know, but we're gonna we're gonna order up home health, and it, then that becomes a transaction between the home health agency and the Medicare Advantage plan. Because for the most part, they're not that sophisticated and sort of taking that uh, kind of episodic approach to that post-acute care. They should be, but, but they don't. And, and I would say the big, huge except here is except if they're working with kind of like a third-party entity, like a NAVA Health that they've contracted with to kind of manage that whole continuum of care. But even in that case, you know, where the NAVA Health might be like, all right, you're out of there, and you're going to go home with home health, and they might be sort of taking a little bit more of a holistic view of it. They're still trying to use as few skilled nursing facility days as humanly possible to achieve the same outcomes, because that's where, you know, that's where the dollars are in the post-acute care
0: stay. Exactly. Kind of on that topic, one of the things that I also think gets lost when we talk about Medicare Advantage, or at least when I'm out on the conference circuit and when I'm talking to providers, is what's in it for the consumer? You know, why are these plans becoming increasingly attractive? And what's, for lack of a better word and no pun intended, the advantage uh, from a yeah. consumer standpoint of taking on these plans. Because I think we, we often hear, oh, Medicare Advantage is bad for providers, bad for providers. But if it wasn't good for consumers, we wouldn't be seeing this kind of steady uptick in uh, penetration. So what is it for right. consumers and what's yeah. the proposition?
1: So I wanna, I'm going to answer that question. But before I do, I want to just say, so I run a consumer website called daughterhood.org. And Mm -hmm. where I hear a lot from caregivers who aren't the direct consumers, but they are very close to it. And I will tell you one of the chief pain points that I hear about in the caregiving journey is actually around the Medicare Advantage utilization management techniques in skilled nursing. In other words, I get a lot of emails from folks who say, my mom's only been in for seven days. I really need her to get three more days. And they're kicking her out. That's how they'll always say it. They're kicking her out. And I'll always say, I think your mom must be on a Medicare Advantage plan, (laughs) because I know for sure that if she weren't, you you wouldn't be having this conversation with me until like day 27, you know? So it's interesting to hear the consumer perspective on that particular aspect of their experience with post-acute care when their parent is in Medicare Advantage. But having said that, the reason why Medicare Advantage is growing so quickly is because consumers are increasingly in need of solutions to out of pocket costs, healthcare out of pocket costs. So Medicare fee for service has a lot of gaps in it and if you don't have any kind of supplemental insurance then you face significant, you know, out of pocket cost liability from deductibles and co-payments. You don't have any catastrophic cost protection in other words there comes a point past which, you know, if you've had, you know, x number of days in the hospital where, you know, Medicare is like you're out. You're you're out of coverage if you're in traditional fee-for-service. So there's a lot of risk there. And supplemental, kind of your traditional Medigap or supplemental insurance policies, first of all, you have to buy them when you're 65 or, in order to get the good rate. Otherwise, after that, they're allowed to age rate it. And it gets more expensive over time and you have to pay penalties. And, and the point is, if you don't buy that supplemental insurance, or you don't have employer-sponsored insurance, then you're facing these high out-of-pocket costs and Medicare Advantage that is the number one thing that it does. It is by law required to cap out-of-pocket catastrophic costs. You know, these plans compete on price. If you go into the marketplace and you try to buy a Medicare Advantage plan, you'll see they're offering deals to consumers. Like you can you get the traditional Medicare benefit package plus some dental plus something else and it's going to cost you less than it would if you just stayed in traditional fee-for-service. So that's you know, healthcare prices are increasing pretty rapidly. So that's why Medicare Advantage is becoming an increasingly popular option.
0: Got it. So I guess the, the, the problem there is that when you're 65 and you're shopping for these plans, you're not probably not thinking about, A, you probably don't know how it works from a long-term care perspective, and B, you're probably not thinking about long-term care at all. If you're 65, you're probably still at work. You're not even thinking about in 20 years, I might be in a nursing home and this could end up being bad for me.
1: Yep, Exactly. Exactly, that's the problem. And so, um, actually, we we've done uh, quite a bit of analysis, and in fact, some of it has actually just gone up on a website. We're going to be putting it up on our website soon, but it's on the Scan Foundation website, where we actually analyze the population enrolled in Medicare Advantage compared to the population enrolled in Medicare fee for service. And actually, what we see is that there are more middle to low income individuals enrolled in Medicare Advantage than there are enrolled in traditional Medicare, which, you know, after everything I just told you about the fact that it covers so much of the out-of-pocket costs makes sense. But, you know, we it turns the whole sort of like insurance proposition on its head. Like we always thought, oh, insurance companies are looking for the healthy people. Like people who are healthy are more likely to enroll in a Medicare Advantage plan because they don't really need, you know, a lot of choice and access to providers and things like that. But actually what we're finding is kind of the opposite. We're seeing more of the, and this is why the SNFs are getting hit so hard, right? Because we're actually seeing more people with functional impairments, chronic conditions, middle to low income. Those are the folks who are actually more likely to enroll in Medicare Advantage now. And they're also the folks who are more likely to use skilled nursing facilities. So not only is enrollment in Medicare Advantage going up, but the people who are enrolling in Medicare Advantage are the people who are more likely to be using skilled nursing facilities. So it's like a double whammy.
0: Wow. Yeah, that would not necessarily be what my thought would be if you asked me off the top of my head. Yeah. Who's more likely to be? You would think people with lower income would just rely on traditional Medicare. But yeah, that is very interesting. Yet yet another minefield for uh, operators to navigate.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: (laughs) And one of the reasons in particular that I like getting your perspective on stories is that you tend to be a little more, I would say, realistic about the uh, realities for skilled nursing providers. I know you've spoken to my colleague, Maggie Flynn, about how providers really don't have a lot of leverage in ACOs the way that you might think they do after seeing some presentations on the conference circuit. So <laughs> and one of the most common things that I hear when I go talk to people who are really operators is they say, all this stuff sounds great, you know, working with Medicare Advantage, working with ACOs. It all sounds great in practice, but right now I'm in a fee-for-service world and I have to figure out how to keep my lights on and keep my staff paid and, you know, how to just survive until the next wave comes in. So I guess How do operators really survive having one foot in each world, which is kind of the trend that I've been hearing over the last year or so?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. I think this is the $100 million question. I mean, as a consultant whose job it is to come up with solutions to these kinds of things, I have been at a loss. You know, I have struggled both on behalf of my clients and also, obviously, as you see on the conference circuit, giving talks. I don't feel comfortable anymore saying Oh, you know, just, you know, invest in technology and quality and data and nurse practitioners and, and then, and you'll be perfectly positioned and then you can, you know, march yourself into the ACO and have a shared savings arrangement or something or higher volume or whatever. Because I have, I have not seen that actually work in real life. And so the conclusion that I have come to is that you have to get, you got to get your foot out of the other canoe as quickly as possible. In other words, as much as you can as a provider, really think about the different strategies you can employ to be farther up the food chain and in control of what we you know, kind of call, quote unquote, the premium dollar as much as possible. How can you put yourself in a position in your market so that you're driving the healthcare decisions from the perspective of holding the risk? The healthcare risk and holding, distributing the healthcare dollar. And I know that all sounds very theoretical. And, and what I what I just mean is like, just to take, take a very concrete example of how that has worked well, is that we saw a lot of providers go out and become bundled payment, you know, participate in the CMS's first round of bundled payment under a model in which the bundle started with their organization and kind of continued through a post-acute care episode. So they became bundled payment participants. And in that model, they were able to do much better, because if they shortened the length of stay or they reduced rehospitalizations, so or they send somebody home with home house and they, you know, invested in all of those different kinds of care processes, they actually got return on their investment. Now, unfortunately, that particular program has been discontinued. Yes. So it's, it, you know, it's very, I don't, you know, I fully recognize that, but I use that just as an example to say, you know, we have a new bundled payment demonstration called BPCI Advanced. And it's, it's a much harder lift or bigger or heavier lift for organizations to, to participate as conveners in this new world, in this new demo, but it's possible. And the applications start, you know, CMS is, is going to reopen the application process this spring. So I, I just give that as an example. I mean, there are lots of other examples, and certainly you all have covered many of these really, really well, like the ISNPs, and there's bundled payment, and there's even, you know, we even know at least of one large provider has become an ACO. and and actually, let me just say one more thing, which is that you don't have to be big to embrace the strategy, but you do have to work collectively with potentially with other organizations like yours in your markets and in your state. So if you're not big, you can you can get the numbers that you need, but you have to think about your organization kind of as part of a collective in order to move that forward. And there are definitely states that are doing that. You know, Alabama did it, the leading age providers and Ohio have been through this process and I'm aware of others who are talking to each other and figuring out how can we work together to take on risk and to get more control and to kind of get one foot out of that, that world in which we're feeling pulled in, in multiple directions.
0: Yeah. Almost like a, if you can't beat them, join them sort of thing. Which, exactly. Which how, that's how I think about ice creams, is this yeah. idea that if we're getting really pressured, why not just make our own where we can pull some of the levers too?
1: Exactly. And I, you know, I mean, I think realistically, it's not trying. I probably with a little flip in the sense that like you're never, you know, you want to start to move in that direction. The reality is that you're going to be straddling for a while. And so, for example, even in that world of the SNPs, you might get your residential population enrolled in managed care and invest in all of the capabilities that you need in order to do that well. And then you're still going to be negotiating with United and perhaps even a more challenging negotiating environment because you just kept you know, opt them out of your building and now you're negotiating with them on the short stay side and they're, they're less happy with you. So everything, every, you know, action has a reaction and these are really complicated relationships and they vary from market to market, from state to state. And it's, you know, you just, it's a little bit like you just kind of have to accept that this is the new world and the new normal and, and start to look for ways that you can get traction and leverage in your market.
0: Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to turn now, we, I think we've uh, talked enough about Medicare Advantage and ACOs uh, <laughs> for our listeners to unpack for a, a good amount of time. But I want to turn to kind of the other hot button in the industry over the next year, which is going to be PDPM, how that is going to affect the industry. It's obviously been, as a reporter covering the industry, it's been great for me because <laughs> we've had no shortage of coverage and different threads right. to pull but I always like to ask this question because the one thing that struck me the most about it was very rarely, in, in my experience working for trade publications or any kind of publication, very rarely do you hear almost unanimous support among the big providers anytime uh, a new government regulation comes out about that industry. So I, mm-hmm. was, I, was all set. I was all ready to hear a lot of complaining and a lot of anger from the big REITs, from the big publicly traded providers, the ones that we hear do conference calls every quarter. But we didn't get that. We got, this is going to be great for the industry. This is going to be a positive, more, you know, we're linking the kinds of services that we provide more closely to the money that we get for it. And this is all going to be great. Now, do you think that it's going to be as positive for the industry as everyone seems to be saying? Because because it's budget neutral, there's going to have to be winners and losers. That's, that's kind of the one nut that I haven't cracked yet. So I was interested in your take on it.
1: So I would just say, I mean, I think that in theory, it's great. I, mean, I agree with everything that everybody has said. You know, from a from a policy perspective also, I really like it. The previous payment system was just it was just you know, it just didn't reward the right things in the right way. The thing about this that I really like for the industry specifically is that this is how the rest of healthcare is reimbursed. This is how managed care is reimbursed, you know, Earth's, LTAC physicians, like you name it, everyone is paid based on, well, physicians is really complicated, but for the most part, everyone is paid based on the characteristics of the patient, not based on the types of services that are provided. So it, by bringing skilled nursing facility and home health, frankly, kind of into, it's a way of bringing them into the fold. So when you're having a conversation with a hospital and you're working collaboratively with them, there's not this like, it's like a needle on a record, you know, they come from the hospital where they're being paid based on ICD-10s and they enter into the SNP and suddenly it's how many minutes of therapy can they get. And it's really hard to build those clinical partnerships around such diverse sets of incentives. So this is really, you hear SNF saying, we want to be, you know, medical providers in the healthcare delivery system and this sets them up to do that. So, So I'm a fan of it for all those reasons. I think on a practical level, my concern is that I'm worried that the, that some of the folks in the industry are not going to respond to this or take it as seriously as they should in terms of, you know, really looking at their overall business operations and asking themselves who who they want to be under PDPM and and proceeding from that point. And what I mean is, I I think there's just too many who, at least in just my travels, who say to me things like, well you know, we're gonna hire an ICD ten coding company to come in and just make sure we're coded correctly. Or this is just this is just a matter of making sure everybody's trained on I C D 10 codes, or this is just a matter of our therapy company said that that everything's fine and they can handle it for us. <laughs> you know, this idea that somehow this change in payment is really just about a change in, in documentation and coding is is going to result in organizations failing to capture the revenue that they should be capturing, first and foremost. So in other words, I think there's not enough kind of overall understanding, despite, I think, heroic efforts by the trade association. I, I don't know that CEOs are comprehending that this is a strategic change in, in their business, you know, kind of where they're positioned in the market, how they operate their business, how they use their resources you know, how they take care of patients, it really requires that level of thoughtfulness. And I haven't, I don't know that the vast majority of organizations have fully grasped that yet.
0: So what should they be doing now? You know, obviously it's uh, it's not too much time. in the No, I know.
1: So first of all, there's great educational materials out there for free. ACA has a whole bunch of stuff on their website that we helped develop and that I think is really good. And you know there are lots of vendor organizations like point right or point click care and others who are doing educational webinars and so they should you know sit down with their executive team that includes every single business business leader business owner and and walk through all the materials and make sure that that are set up to sort of assi- assess what are you know what are your competencies to diagnose patients what are your competencies to do plans of care are you ready to actually get all of this information kind of you know, in the MDS within eight days, who are the nurse leaders that you're going to trust to be care managers and to push back on physicians to get all of the diagnostic information they need in the record early. I mean, these are educate themselves on the on the new payment system and then begin to assess their abilities to diagnose, document patients, deliver plans of care, and really create smart contracts with all of their vendors. And and these materials are designed to walk them through that. But at the end of the day, you need to, like, go to the CMS, CMS website if you haven't already and look at your impact file. Just pull up your, just don't even, just look at it. Just, you know, when I run my information through this impact file, how, how do we come out? Like, where do we stand today? What does our coding look like today? It's about sitting down and running through with your team, you know, what it is you need to be good at and where your gaps are and how you sell them. Kind of a classic gaps in opportunities analysis
0: got it and then, and then of course there's always the risk you know when we talk about budget neutral it's budget neutral for now but there's also rumblings about you know once cms gets their hands on real data starting in october 2019 and beyond that there could be some adjustments up or down is that is that something that you're hearing concerns about or is that kind of too far down the line
1: oh no 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 no, no. i think there will absolutely be adjustments i mean they built a payment system based on inadequate documentation so in other words you know they they set this all up based on, you know, we don't, we don't code ICD-10 very well right now. And it, and this is just, it's just, this is ex- every single payment system that's ever been developed. This is the process. So there will be massive adjustments, you know, it, over time and not just this year, but there will be adjustments going forward. To be honest with you right now, my concern, I could, I'd be interesting to see if I'm right or extremely wrong on this, but my concern right now is not that October 1 is going to hit and all of a sudden there's going to be this enormous uptick in, in up-coding ICD-10s. My concern is going to be the opposite, that a lot of these myths are just going to leave money on the table because they fundamentally miss that this isn't about ICD-10 coding competency. It's about you know really being able to identify all of the different diagnostic categories that a patient falls into and then to kind of proactively record those in the record and on the MDS. So this isn't just about like checking a whole bunch of boxes. This is like, hey, can I look at this patient with a physician and see the full range of complexities of that patient and identify the primary reason for their stay in a way that is, you know, accurate, but also comprehensive. That's the piece that I think is going to be hard and it's going to take some time. And I think that between October 1st of next year and, you know, for the next six months or so, that there's going to be a lot of skilled nursing facilities leaving a lot of money on the table.
0: Yeah. And that's uh, specifically in, in this uh, landscape. That's not, not, not really a, a right. risk they can't afford. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. That's right. And you know what I think I also see is a lot of because I'm a consultant, so, you know, Organizations call me and they were like, you know, can you come help us do this? And there's certainly operational consultants. I'm more of a strategic consultant. There are operational consultants out there definitely selling, you know, selling things like, you know, we're going to develop a care plan process for you and we're going to just we're going to we're going to take care of this. And, and you know, I'm all for consulting, of course, but this isn't the kind of thing you can outsource. You can get consultants to help you, but you absolutely have to take responsibility for it at the senior levels of your organization. This is how you're going to get paid. And CMS is sending a very strong message about who they want, how they want the skilled nursing facilities to fit into the larger care continuum. And the closer you can get to aligning your, you know, through your clinical programs, your, you know, operational business processes to that vision, And who you are as an organization, and that requires leadership at the very highest level. It's not something that you can just pass off to a consultant. Sadly, I say sadly.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, look, Anne, I could probably talk about these subjects for uh, another couple hours, but we're reaching the end of my time and our time for this episode. So I just wanted to leave with one last kind of big picture question. We're looking forward to 2019 and beyond, but just focusing on 2019, is it going to be better or worse or about the same? you know, financially and economically for the long-term and post-acute healthcare industries?
1: I would say about the same with a little bit of a downtick related to PDPM, what we were just talking about. And as as everybody, you know, just anything like that takes attention and focus. And so you go through a massive change as an organization, there's like a little setback in terms of revenue. And, I, you know, so I think we're going to see that. I think you know, Medicare Advantage enrollment is going to continue to increase, and that's going to continue to deliver the same kinds of pressures that, you know, managed care plans are may over the long term kind of slowly get with the program and recognize that they can use skilled nursing facilities more strategically in their work, but they have they're not there yet. So, the only tiny hedge that I would on that on that prognostication is that. At some point, we could start to see hospital admissions starting to go back up. So, one of the kind of critically challenging trends for this industry has simply just been that hospital admissions have been down. You know, we might start to see those tick back up a little bit as the population, as we go into, you know, sort of kind of head into 2020 where the baby in the baby boom population continues to get a little bit older. So the numbers, the numbers just might start to look a little bit more positive, but I'm really just hedging there. I, I think overall, we're going to continue to see relatively flat admissions in hospitals or declining pressures on MA rates, PDPM. It's hard. All
0: right, well, we, we can come back here in a year and uh, see if you.
1: Yeah, right. I would like to see if I was right or wrong. I don't, you know, I overall, I don't think think it's a challenging time, but I do think there's, there is a lot of, just to end on a positive, I think there's also a lot of green, green I think (laughs) that's the term, you know, for, for innovation and reinvention and, you know, lots and lots of avenues through which if you, if you're really ready to take on a different role in the healthcare delivery systems in your markets, there's ways to do that. And there's capital for that. So that's, You know, I think that's the exciting thing.
0: All right. Let's end on that upbeat note. I think everyone. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.